Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Good. Hey, thank you for braving some um, gross weather this morning and getting to church. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles open, turn with them to Ephesians 4. We're going to be in Ephesians 4 this morning. We're continuing our march through the book of Ephesians. And uh, if you have notes or, or if you got notes when you came in, you can kind of see that the title of this message is called Two Genuine Needs. And uh, I titled this message this way because there's something interesting that happens with Michiganders this type of year, or this time of year. We get confused about what we want and what we actually need. They're like, here's what I mean, right? It's February, we're in the teeth of winter, and all of a sudden I start hearing a lot from all of you, man, I just need to see the sun, right? It's been like 47 straight days of gray. I need to see that burning circle in the sky. I'm dying. Uh, another one I hear is, I just need to get to Florida, right? And you've got that date marked in your calendar when the trip is planned, and it is everything you're thinking about when you're not thinking about everything else. How do I get to where it's warm, right? Maybe you're here and, and your kids just went to children's ministry, and you're like, man, I just need a few minutes away from my kids. I need some coffee in the morning before I start my day. And listen, all of those things are good. I'm, I'm so in on Florida and the sun and coffee and all of those things. But truthfully, we don't need those things, right? They're nice. We'd really like them. But none of us are going to die if we don't see the sun today. Well, what Paul's going to talk about is not wants or desires or things that would be good. He's going to talk about actual needs that you and I have, that without them, we are in grave danger. So, so what he's going to talk about today carries so much importance. And here's the big idea. Here are the two things Paul's going to address. It's this. It's because you and I need to become more like Jesus. We need to be deeply engaged in a local church. Because you and I need to become more like Jesus, that that is God's primary calling on our life, we need to be deeply engaged in a local church. And um, if I could have your eyes for a minute, this is one of those messages, and I felt this all week, that if you want to, you can accuse me of self-dealing this morning. Right? Some of you are thinking to yourself right now, wow, a pastor is starting a message by telling us that it's really important that we're part of a church. Shocking. I'd never thought I'd hear that, right? It's like our livelihood depends on people coming to church. And you can easily write this off as this is just a churchy thing, that this is something that the pastor is saying, look here, I don't care if that's what you're thinking. I'm not even worried about it. Here's why. Because it's my job to preach the truth and what you're going to see in the text, if God's word is your authority, you're going to see this so clearly that you're going to be on my side by the end of the next 30 minutes. So I'm not even sweating your stink eye right now. What Paul's saying is that you and I need to become more like Jesus. And if we're going to get there, we need to be deeply engaged in a local church. So let's get going. Look at uh, verse 1. In chapter 4, he says, I therefore, talking about himself, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. All right, so if you take notes in your Bible, underline Galatians 4 verse 1, because this is the transitional moment in the book of Ephesians. Um, in Ephesians up to this point, Paul has been focusing on theology. 
This is who we are in Christ. This is what God has done for us. We've been predestined. We've been saved. We've been sanctified. Look how amazing Jesus is. Look at all that we have been given in Christ. And in verse 4, there's this transition where now the focus kind of becomes on us. And what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of this calling? So the first three chapters is look at everything that God has done for you. First chapters 4 through 6 is now what are we called to do in response? So we got to answer this question. What is he talking about? What does walk in a manner worthy mean? Well, if I could sum it down to one word, it means maturity. What Paul's saying is, is that in order for us to walk in a manner worthy, it is that we are to be growing and achieving maturity in our faith and our relationship with Christ. You know, one of the most common ways the Christian experience is described in the Bible is this idea of being born again or reborn. Jesus talks about it this way in John 3, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, so one thing that's kind of um, interesting about how God plans out this process of salvation is that when we're saved, we're not just zapped up straight into heaven. Like, wouldn't that be nice? Like, like to miss this whole middle thing just to be with the Lord and in heaven? That doesn't happen. Um, and we're not even saved to maturity. It says we're saved and we become like spiritual babies. So we get saved, we become not perfect, not mature, but babies. And now the rest of our lives we are spending growing in maturity in our faith. Paul's saying this is what we need to do. And then the rest of Ephesians is he's just going to lay out specifically what does maturity look like. Starting in verse 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, and just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is over all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended... What does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Okay, so there's a lot there, and I'm going to kind of break that down a little bit. But here's what Paul's saying. He's saying if the call is maturity, the vehicle by which we reach maturity is the church. So, so don't miss what's happening here. Paul is going to talk about a lot of things in the next three chapters. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about work. He's going to talk about parenting. He's going to talk about family and relationships and our personal lives. He's going to talk about a ton. But what does he start with? He starts with the church. Look at verse 2 again. In all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is so important for Paul for us to understand that when we think of growth, it's not just me individually growing all by myself. It's me being part of a community of people who are collectively growing in maturity together. And in verses 4 and 5, he talks about all that we share in common. That we have one spirit, one Lord, one God the Father. The entire trinity is mentioned in those verses. That we have one faith, one hope, one baptism. He's like, our lives center around the same thing, so we need to be unified. 
And then in verses 7 through 10, he talks about how each of us have been given gifts by Jesus for the purpose of building up one another in love. And we preach messages before that go into the spiritual gifts. I don't have time to unwind all of that today, but here's what I want you to hear, that the gifts we've been given by God, they're not for ourselves to hoard onto selfishly, but they're gifts that we are called to re-gift to one another as we build one another up. They're not about us, they're about how do we serve one another. And then in verses 11, or not 11, that's not a word, 11 through 13, He talks about how he gave the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? For what purpose? Well, look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, here it is, to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So he's saying the reason we have all these things is to build one another up until we reach maturity. The call on our lives is to grow in spiritual maturity. The vehicle is the church. And um, throw up the next slide. Some of you might have questions. It says apostles and prophets. Well, these are different functions and gifts he's given the church in leadership. The apostolic gifting is pushing us onward, helping us not get stuck. Remember at the beginning of the year, we kind of asked the question, hey, what's the next yes you need to say to Jesus? What's the next yes you need to say in your walk with Christ? That's an apostolic question. Let's not stay where we're at. Let's continue to move forward. There's the prophetic. It's telling us the truth like it is, maybe even when we don't want to hear it warning us to stay pure and godly in all that we do. There's the evangelistic. It's helping us not to become ingrown, but reminding us that there's a world out there that needs Jesus. There's the pastoral, sensitive to the people, caring for their needs. The focus is on the people, not just the programs. Then there's the teachers. They provide systematic instruction, guiding us to take into the account the whole counsel of God in all that we do. Okay, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that God has uniquely equipped the church to function as a vehicle for spiritual maturity. Here's the problem. Most Christians don't believe this. A few years ago, Barna, the kind of biggest research group for churches in the country, they did a poll of American Christians, and here's what they found. They, they said that most American Christians, 51%, believe it is not too important or important at all to be involved in a church. More millennials are actively anti-church, 35%, than believe church attendance is important. And by the way, I just want to say, um, this is pre-pandemic. And I would imagine those numbers haven't swayed greater since COVID, right? Um, Most Americans say, I just don't think church is important. Uh, My grandpa was a very, very successful businessman in Chicago. And what happens is, is when you're successful in anything and you get older, younger people come and ask you for advice. They want to learn from people who have been successful. So when my grandpa was older, he would have businessmen all of the time approach him and, and say, hey, I've got this job opportunity and I'm thinking of moving my family to Houston, Texas. It's more pay, it's better benefits, should I take it? Or I think I'm going to Pennsylvania or California. He would get guys that would come to him and ask me, I think I'm, I'm thinking of moving for a job opportunity, what should I do? And my grandpa's advice was always the same. He goes, never commit to uprooting your family and taking a job somewhere else unless you go to that place and spend a couple weekends there and make sure that you guys find a church that you can plug into and be involved in and continue to grow in your walk with Christ. 
You see, my grandpa knew that God's primary call on our lives isn't the better job or it isn't a little bit more money. It's that we would become more like Christ and the church is necessary to get there. Um, last Friday, we had this thing that we do at our church from time to time. It's called Party with the Pastors, right? It sounds like a blast, right? That's what exactly what I want to do. I go party with a bunch of pastors. Um, who's been to Party with the Pastors at our church, right? See, look, if you haven't raised your hand, look how many people are. You guys are missing out. Um, here's what it is. It's very, very simple. We invite people who are new to the church, maybe a couple months, maybe a year, maybe a few weeks, and, and we just explain to them a little bit about who we are. They get to meet us, they get to know us, and it's like, here's our ministry philosophy, here's some doctrinal stuff. Like, we are just trying to explain as best we can what it's like to be a part of this church. And then at the end of the time, my dad and I, we kind of get in front of everyone, and we say, all right, here's the time of the night where you can ask us whatever you want. And if you think about it, that's kind of a terrifying position to put ourselves in. Like, it's a little bit weird for me to have people that don't know me very well, and I don't know them very well, and be like, hey, you can ask me anything. Well, why do we do that? Because we believe it's so important that people are engaged and plugged into a church. I want to provide as much clarity as I can on what our church is like, so people know whether this is the church for them or not. I would rather have someone leave party with the pastors being like, this is definitely not it for me than to be here but not be engaged because they're unsure. And even last Friday, I had a couple come up to me after party with the pastors. They're like, hey, we wanted to come because we had some questions. You guys answered all of our questions. Thank you so much. We're looking forward to plug in. This is our church. And then I had another couple that are like, ah, we're going to keep checking. And it was like, yeah, we definitely sealed the deal that we weren't the church for them. And that's okay. And I'm like, all right, here's a list of other churches that I would recommend. I just know our calling is to be deeply engaged in a local body. Why? You're saying it's important, Cal. Why? Well, look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children. That's the answer. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See, here's what he's saying. He's saying we can't stay children we need to grow and mature. And what he does in this text is he gives us three marks of spiritual babiness. Or, or maybe a better way to say it is if you want to stay a spiritual baby, here's three things to do. Here's the first. If you want to stay a spiritual baby, uh, be self-absorbed. Make everything about yourself. Look at verse 2. It says this. It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Do you see how all the words he uses in verse 2 are the opposite of selfishness? He's saying that when we interact with one another, we need to be humble, view others as greater than ourselves. We need to be patient. We need to bear with one another. That means sometimes it's not going to be easy, but we're going to hang in there. You see, here's the thing about babies. Babies, their whole world revolves around them. They want what they want right when they want it, and if they don't get what they want, they're going to let everyone know they're not happy. That's how babies work. If you want to stay a baby, make everything about yourself. Be easily offended. Be consumed with how others view you or treat you. Focus only on your needs. Surround yourself with people who you like and are easy and no one else. Focus solely on what the church is or isn't doing for you while neglecting to even think about what it looks like to lovingly give yourselves to others. Come into church today with the mentality of what is this place going to do for me? Or come to small group being like, what are these people going to do for me rather than how can I love and serve and build up my brothers and sisters in Christ? 
came across another article this week called Reasons Why Committed Christians Aren't Going to Church Anymore. And here was a list they gave of some of them. Here's one. I can find better preaching online. I can worship on my own. I have friends who can be my church. I can study on my own. I have work and family obligations, right? My weekends are busy. Church is boring. It's not making any difference. I've been hurt by the church before. All right, look at that list for a second. Please tell me that you guys see that these are primarily selfish reasons to not be at church, right? It's I'm thinking about myself and what is best for me. Another reason why I I think many people don't go to church, it's a very simple one. It's easier to stay home, right? Like you get up in the morning and you see that it's 11 degrees outside and snowy and you're doing this quick math equation. It's this. It's cold out there. My PJs are warm and comfortable. I think I might just hang in my PJs today, right? Like that's a decision we've got to make on Sunday morning. And listen, first of all, I love that we have live stream. I love that people can tune in from home. And if kids are sick or if you're sick or if you're on vacation, you can stay connected with our church. It's a massive blessing. But church, listen, we know that sometimes even good things become the enemy of the best thing, right? And there is a sense to where we have made it to where you guys can easily make a selfish decision that the Lord would not have for you. I think one of the biggest challenges of being a Christian today in our culture is we live in a culture where selfishness, it's not just tolerated, it's a virtue in our, in our culture. Everywhere we look, we're told, be selfish, do what's best for you. And what you need to see is what Paul's saying is, is that is the opposite of maturity in Christ. One of the cool things about being a part of a church for a long time is I get to see people live out maturity and selflessness in really powerful ways. Um, there's a family in our church, uh, Tim and Becky Fulmer. They didn't know that I was going to talk about them. They're probably embarrassed that I am, but I've known Tim and Becky for about nine or ten years now. And they started coming to our church maybe when we were at International Aid or the Trillium, I'm not even sure. But they were just a couple that came in and plugged in and started serving and have served hundreds of weekends here at our church. And I remember um, talking to Tim. Tim plays bass um, in the band, and then Becky, uh, she works in back and does production. She's the one that makes sure my notes look good and, and that everything makes sense. And I remember once talking to Tim in the green room between services, and I'm like, man, you guys have been so faithful for so long. And Tim's like, yeah, that's easy. We have a family rule. Whenever we're asked to serve, we just say yes. We understand that we're called to serve and be builders of the church. And so when we're asked to serve, it's easy for us. We just say yes. And here's the amazing thing. That mentality is passed down a generation to their kids. Joel Fulmer, when he first came to our church, was in my high school ministry as a youth pastor. And he plugged in and he served and he's a super gifted drummer and he drummed for youth group and he drummed for our church and did it all through high school. Then he went away to college, but when he was back for spring break or uh, midwinter break or whatever, he would come back and he would serve. And now he's out of college, he's working, he's married, and he still serves like crazy. And their daughter, Erin, same exact story. I'm seeing the generational blessing of maturity saying, we understand that we're called to serve, so we're going to make it a priority. Another person that has modeled this so well for me is my father-in-law, Randy Moeller. If you know my father-in-law, Randy, he's an elder at our church. He lives his life serving others. He was a dentist for years and years and years. And while he was a dentist, he would 
go uh, across the world on medical missions trips and just spend a week or two in places where no one else could get dental help and would help people for free just to relieve pain. He oversaw Love, Inc.'s, their dental department locally to help underserved people get dental help for free or for very minimal cost. And now that he's retired, guess what he does? He spends a lot of time hanging out with his grandkids to help give us a break from time to time. And he loves them and serves them. And then when he's not doing that, he's usually in his shop building something out of wood to give to someone else. And he teaches Bible study like his Life is how can I be a blessing to others? And that is what maturity looks like. Here's the next way we can stay babies. Um, Let's just stay undiscerning. If we want to stay spiritual babies, let's just not grow in our knowledge of God's word. Look at verse 13 again. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So what he's saying is is one of the marks of maturity is that we grow in the knowledge of God. That our faith is rooted to truth and we grow to know more and more about God and Jesus through his word. One of the mistakes Mary and I made, and and if you're young, don't make this same mistake. We had babies in our house at the same time we had dogs. All right, that's a huge mistake. Here's why. Because babies are undiscerning and everything goes in their mouth, right? Their food goes in their mouth, their toys go in their mouth, batteries go in their mouth, right? Like, Like they'll just take something and grab it and it's going in their mouth. Well, there have for sure been times where I've been hanging out with Mary and all of a sudden Judah comes crawling in to the kitchen and there's brown stuff all over his face. And it's like, honey, that is not chocolate, right? And I'm like gagging and I'm like, I'm out, Mary. You got to take this one. I'm so weak in this moment. Um, Right? They're undiscerning. They don't know the difference between what is good and what is unhealthy and what is poison. Well, that's what Paul is warning is that there is some doctrine that is good. There's some doctrine that's just bad, but there's also teaching that is poison. We're called to grow in maturity and growth in knowledge and discernment. Can I ask you a question? Are you growing more in your knowledge of God's word? Here's one. Can you defend what you believe? Like, can you defend your faith against common criticisms in our culture of Christianity today? Here's a couple. Um, If God is good and powerful, why does he allow evil? Right? People are going to say that to you when they find out you're a Christian. Do you have a good defense? Christianity is way too exclusive, right? Like, if I grew up in India, I would be a Hindu. So, like, you can't really say that, like, Christianity is the only way because it's just dependent on where you live, and that's not how God would actually work. Doesn't everything get to this kind of the same place? Why should I believe the Bible? Why should I hold it as an authority? Can you answer these robustly? Do you understand how Scripture works together, the Old Testament relating to the New Testament and what God is doing in the flow of Scripture? Can you explain why we aren't under the Old Testament law anymore and you can enjoy a cheeseburger tonight when you watch the Super Bowl? Do you know why? Can you show how all Scripture points to Jesus? Listen, just like in real life, maturity means growth in understanding and knowledge. And by the way, this is something our church takes seriously. Do you know that every night, or every Tuesday night here in this building, we have uh, discipleship classes that are geared around growing your knowledge of God's Word? 
We have classes that are, how does the Bible fit together? What is God doing throughout all of Scripture? We have classes on theology, growing in doctrine. We have a class we're doing this uh, semester I'm really excited about. It's, hey, here's answers to all the difficult questions. And here's what I would say. Right now, we have dozens of people attending that every week. It should be hundreds of people. There needs to be a sincere desire to grow so that we may be rooted to what is true. Here's a third way to stay a baby. Live life easily shaken. Live life easily shaken. Let all of your circumstances decide your joy. It says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Did you know that one of the things Jesus would often tell his disciples when he was on earth was just to grow up? Like that was a conversation he had a lot with his disciples. His disciples would do something dumb and he'd be like, hey, you guys need to grow up. One example was um, when the disciples, he sent, Jesus sent them away to a bunch of different villages. And he's like, I want you to go talk about me. I want you to do some healing. I want you to cast out some demons. I'm going to give you the power to do that. So the disciples go and they do it and they come back and their chest is all puffed up. And they're like, man, we're awesome. Even the demons listen to us. It's so cool. And Jesus looks at him. He's like, listen, don't be excited that the demons listen to you. Be excited that your name is written in the book of life. See what he's saying? He's saying, you guys need to grow up. Don't just be pumped up because things are going well right now, because things aren't always going to go well. And if your faith and, and if your confidence is just what's going on in the moment, you're going to fail. But what is not ever untrue about you is that you are saved that you are loved by God, that's never being taken away. Grow up, anchor yourself to what is unchanging rather than how things are going in the moment. Right, I think Peter's the most obvious example of this. Right, Peter sees Jesus walking on the water and in a moment of faith, he's like, Jesus, let me walk with you. And he's the only disciple that has the courage to get out of the boat. And then he starts to walk, but then he looks around and it's rough out there and he freaks out and he starts to sing. Right? Peter's like, Jesus, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. I will die before anyone takes you away from me. A couple hours later, he's denying Jesus to everyone he sees. It's immaturity. It's being tossed to and fro by the waves. Mature people have deep roots and aren't shaken by every circumstance in their life, good or bad. They are rooted to the gospel. They are confident of God's love for them and his power in their life. And this plays out both in the good and bad seasons. Okay, church, here's what I'm trying to say, and this is really important. Um, maturity doesn't happen just by hanging around a church for a long time. It's not just time that makes someone mature. There has to be intentional growth in selflessness, in knowledge, and instability in your faith. Like there are some people here who you've been a part of a church for 30, 40, 50 years and you're still a spiritual baby, just as self-absorbed. Don't know God's word, can't defend it. It's not having an impact on your life. And when things are going good, you're fine. And when things are going terrible, you're angry and you're bitter and, and, and you live an unstable life. All right, so here's a tension that we have to get right. And, and this is why I think relationships in church can get really, really tricky. He, here's a reality, a tension that we have. Um, none of us have reached maturity, right? Paul writes, he, he, he says, until we reach full maturity. When, when he says, hey, we need to grow in maturity, he's including himself. And here's the problem. If Paul hasn't reached maturity, none of us have a shot. 
He was way farther down the line than any of us were, but he's like, all of us are still a work in progress, and we're never going to reach full maturity this side of eternity. So, so we come together as a group of people who none of us have it all together, none of us are the finished product, and, and what that means is we need to lead with grace towards one another. Because none of us are the finished product, that means that there are going to be times where others act immaturely towards me, and they hurt me, and I have to lead with grace and patience and humility, and the thing Paul calls me to in verse 2. Like, let me say it very, very clearly. If you deeply engage in a local church, you will absolutely get hurt from time to time. It's part of the gig. Like, to expect that you can be a part of a church and no one's ever going to hurt you, it would be like signing up to serve with our infants in children's ministry and walking in the class and being stunned there's dirty diapers. It's like, no, no, that's what you signed up for. None of us are the finished product, so that means we have to expect that we're not going to be treated perfectly. Listen, if your goal in life is to never get hurt, let me help you right now. Don't be a part of a church. Don't engage with others. But if your goal in life is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, if it is maturity, we need to lean in and engage with what God is doing in the church and trust that God's going to use the hurt and frustrations to make us more like Christ. Like he's sovereign even over those things. Okay, but here's the other part of the tension that we also have to get right. We can't make excuses for ourselves. So we've got to be gracious towards others but we can't make excuses and justify our own sin. A couple nights ago, I'd put all the kids to bed because Mary wasn't feeling well. And a couple minutes after they all went down, Bo called me up from the top of the stairs and he goes, Dad? And I'm like, yeah, what's up? He goes, I need to talk with you. So I have him come down. He sits by me on the couch. I'm like, what's going on? He goes, I just feel bad. And I'm like, why do you feel bad? And he goes, well, today in art class, He was like, today in art class, um, the teacher was talking, explaining what we were going to do, and I was messing around with my friends, and we were joking around, and I I stole one of my friend's hats, and and the teacher got mad, and she yelled at me, and I was going to give the hat back, but I got in trouble, and I know it was wrong, I know it was disrespectful, and I just feel so bad that I wasn't paying attention. Okay, so in that moment, I'm loving the fact I'm having this conversation with Bo. Here's why. I'm seeing him mature. He's taking ownership of his actions. He's not making excuses. He's not blaming his friends. He's like, I know what I did was wrong. I know that it was disrespectful to the teacher. I feel bad about it. I want to make it right. I think one of the best tests or gauges of whether someone's heart is or where someone's heart is, is do they have a high level or low level of ownership over their own sin? Romans 6.1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Like church, I just want to be real with you. Those words my son said to me a couple nights ago, some of you in this room haven't said those things for years. I know what I did was wrong. I feel awful that I hurt you. Please forgive me. I want to make it right. I, I, want, I want to do better. Right? That's an ownership over sin and failure. It's not, well, you made me do it, or I've had a bad day at work, or you don't understand everything that I'm going through. You don't get how hard it is. Like, it's not blame shifting. It's not, you know, making excuses. We need to live with this balance. Maturity says, I'm going to love and be gracious and bear with one another. 
but I'm going to take my own sin very, very seriously because I want to glorify God with my life, and I hate the sin that lives in my heart. I think oftentimes we have this backwards. We tend to be really, really hard on others and give ourselves a lot of grace and quick to make excuses. All right, look at verse 15 as we wrap up. It says this. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All right, so if the call is maturity and the vehicle is the church, here's what Paul is saying. The process by which we grow in maturity, it's speaking truth and love to one another. It is both the process of loving one another and speaking truth into them, and it's the process of others loving us and speaking truth into our lives. And the cool thing is, is the Lord matures us on both sides of the coin. Like when I have to love Randy, my brother-in-law, and I've got to be patient with him and kind with him, and and he's got to do the same to me, and yet we've got to speak truth to each other, God's using that process to grow us. Because guess what Jesus does? He is the one who perfectly speaks the truth in love. Like I've heard this said, um, the cross is Jesus both at his most truthful moment and his most loving. Like, listen, the cross says awful things about you. You realize that, right? right? What the cross says is, is you are so sinful and wicked that nothing other than the death of the Son of God himself could save you, right? It's not pretty. But guess what it also says? But you're worth it and you're valuable and that God loves you so much that Jesus went to the cross with joy. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross because he loves you so much. It's the perfect picture of truth and love. So when we do that with one another, we're actually growing to be more like Christ. So like, let me make it very, very clear and applicable. The person in your small group who drives you crazy, that is God's grace in your life. Because they have to be patient with someone and bear with someone who's hard to like and hard to love and to figure out how do I love them yet still tell them the truth. That is Jesus forming you into being more like him. We also need people to speak truth into our lives. Here's a question. Have you guys ever heard your, yourself speak on like a recording? Have you guys ever had that happen before? Certainly not just me. Raise your hand if you've had that happen. Isn't that an awful experience? Right? Like I hate hearing myself on a recording. Here's why. Because we don't sound like we think we sound, right? Like I remember when I was first preaching, I would listen to a recording of myself and I'd be like, Mayor, is that actually how I sound? I sound way whinier than I think I do. And she's like, yep, that's you, babe. I was like, love you, right? We don't sound like we think we sound. We have a misperception. Well, the same thing is true in our lives. You know that? Like they're called blind spots because we can't see them. There are things that we think we present ourselves or things that we think are good priorities that are maybe not good priorities and we're blind to them. And we need people who love the Lord and who love us and are kind and patient and bearing with us, but also love us enough to tell us what we don't want to hear sometimes. Right? We have a saying at Harvest that love without truth is hypocrisy. That if I say that I love Josh, but I'm never willing to put myself out there and say what he needs to hear, even though it would help him because I don't want any um, discomfort in my life, I'm actually just loving myself. I'm being a hypocrite. I don't love Josh. But 
truth without love is brutality. And if people are ever going to listen to you, if you're ever going to make an impact in people's lives, they need to know that you love them and care for them, and you need to show that to them by how you interact with them. We need both. So do me a favor as we close. Can you just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? I, I want to close by just asking a very, very simple question. Are you growing in maturity in Christ? Like, can you look at yourself right now and see tangible growth in self-control, in humility, in a desire to love and serve others? Are you growing in your knowledge of what you believe? Is your faith becoming more real to you than it was six months or a year ago? Or are you stagnating? And then maybe the next question I would ask is again, we asked in January, what's the next yes you need to say to Jesus? What might be the next yes you need to say to the church? What might that next step of engagement look like? Because here's what I know, that God has given us everything and he has called us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, that we need to grow to be more like Jesus, grow in maturity, and the way we do that is through the family that he has gathered together. And I wanna be a place where we give our all to one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for um, today. I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word. God, I just pray that you would move in people's hearts. God, I'm thankful for a church that, that um, is so committed to attending in person and is getting here even when it's awful outside and this room is warm because it's filled with your spirit. Now, may we be people who live lives that are built on your love. May we be a people that glorify you in all that we say and do. We need your help. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.